There we go. Hi and welcome to Om Philosophers Liv och Tankar, a part where we discuss philosophy with philosophers. My name is Fredrik Eriksson, liaison librarian in philosophy here at Lund University. And by my side, I have, as per usual, uh, Matti Jansson, associate professor in theoretical philosophy at Lund University. And with us today, a special guest, uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, co-director of the Center of Cognitive Studies and the Austin B. Fletcher Professor of Philosophy at Tufts University. Author of numerous influential books, primarily famous for his writings on the philosophy of mind, in particular his views of uh, consciousness. Uh, thanks for being here. Well, I'm delighted to join you. So since this episode is about you and your philosophical development, let us start from the very beginning. To your recollection, what is your first philosophical thought? Well, I have no idea what my first philosophical thought was, but I can certainly remember as a child um, discovering solipsism. I remember walking home from school one day when I was maybe eight or nine or 10. And uh, the thought occurred to me and it was a sort of wonderful thought. Maybe I'm the only person that exists and all the rest are just here for me. It's all just a big puppet show for my benefit. It was a, a amusing fantasy. Uh, uh, I never took it seriously beyond just exploring the idea and thinking it was a wonderful idea. I also remember uh, hitting upon the, the uh, idea that maybe when you and I look up at the sky and call that color blue, that we're actually seeing different colors. Uh, uh, that idea also occurred to me early on and I had fun thinking about it uh, and probably talking about it with friends. My, uh, when I went to summer camp, uh, which I did for a number of summers, uh, some of the counselors, uh, one in particular, said to me one day, Danny, I think, uh, I think you're, you're going to be a philosopher. You could be a philosopher. And I didn't even know what a philosopher was. He explained, and I thought, oh, you mean you can get paid for doing that? Uh, I thought it was just a fun hobby of mine. Do you remember uh, what you had done prior to, to elicit that comment? Was no, I can't, I can't remember what particular musing I had shared. <laughs> I, I gather, although I have no sort of very direct memories of it, I have indirect memories that um, uh, I, was, I was known to spend a lot of time talking with the counselors rather than with my fellow campers. Counselors were a bit older and I was always trying things out on them, um, which uh, wasn't always... Uh, a socially wise thing to do. I got a bit of a reputation for uh, being uh, uh, too interested in the counselors and not interested in my fellow campers. Um, but uh, there it is. <laughs> so, so what's the sort of idea of pursuing philosophy with you from that point onwards or? But but not obsessively, not not uh, uh, very much of my attention. It was when I was a freshman in college. Um, well, I remember in high school, especially when I was at Exeter, a very fine um, boarding school for two years, the last two years of high school, I engaged in a lot of philosophical discussion. Um, with my friends then, but I, I, I wasn't thinking of it as a career, it was just something that I engaged in. But then when I was a freshman and took a, my first philosophy course and read Descartes, I remember thinking, oh, this is very interesting, but he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll take an afternoon or two and see if I can figure out exactly 
how he's wrong. I remember writing a paper on Descartes uh, demolishing, in my view, uh, the meditations and, and uh, the discourse on method as a freshman. And that sort of hooked me. So this is at Harvard? No, no. Oh, it's I went for one year to Wesleyan University and then I transferred to Harvard. I, uh, I went to Wesleyan University just to be different. My, my friends were going to Harvard, uh, quite a few of them, because uh, Exeter was a feeder for Harvard in those days. Uh, Harvard has since reformed its admissions policies and doesn't take so many students from, from one school. Uh, but with my friends going off to Harvard, I decided to strike off on a different path. Went to Wesleyan for a year. It was a good thing I did because that's where I encountered in my freshman year the work of Quine. Mm. Uh, not, in a, not in a philosophy course. Um, I was taking a math course and uh, Henry Kyberg, the wonderful logician philosopher at Rochester, but at that point he was the graduate student at Princeton finishing his dissertation. And he was teaching math uh, at Wesleyan. And I signed up for a course as a freshman, which uh, I, I, they twisted my arm. They said, you're, you're a good mathematician. You've got to take a math course. And I didn't think I was a good mathematician, but I was well-trained. Uh, and I didn't want to go on in calculus. I didn't want to go on in the regular math curriculum. So I reluctantly signed up for a course in topics in modern mathematics. Sounded sort of cool. And Kyberg, who was teaching it, said, well, we don't have to do what it says in the syllabus because there's us, you and me, and one graduate student. <laughs> so since he was a logician, the graduate student wanted to do logic. And uh, Henry Kyberg, thinking that I was some kind of math prodigy, that's what he'd been told, uh, assigned me Quine's mathematical logic, not methods of logic, but mathematical logic, which is a scary book. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a really uh, industrial strength uh, logic book. And that was my that was my first logic course. <laughs> um, did that influence your thinking, or was that something? Did that, did that influence your thinking, or was that some an obstacle to overcome? Or how did you relate to the book after? Well, what happened is one night in the math library that freshman year, I was sort of frantically trying to do the problem sets in mathematical logic. And I looked around the library and there was on a shelf was Quine's book from a logical point of view. And I picked it up and put it down. And unlike mathematical logic, this one wasn't filled with formulas and proofs and problems. This was written in English. <laughs> and I stayed up all night reading it and in the morning, I decided I had to transfer to Harvard and go work with this guy. Uh, more specifically, I was going to work against him. Again, <laughs> I decided he was wrong, but my, he was interesting. And uh, so I put in the transfer to Harvard, which I did. And uh, the very first course I took when I got to Harvard was Quine's uh, philosophy of language course. And the year was 1960, and that's the year that Word and Object was published. Right. And so I sat, I was a student in the very first reading of Word and Object. And uh, I was just a sophomore. I was about 18 years old. And uh, the class was quite intimidating, actually. David Lewis and Tom Nagel were there. It was, it was a, I thought, oh boy, this is this is exciting. This is fun. I felt um, as if I'd been thrown in the deep end of the pool, and so I had. 
what was your impression of Quine as a teacher? Well, I was fascinated with Quine's ideas, but he was a terrible teacher. <laughs> he he uh, was shy and sort of phlegmatic, and he would come to class with a few index cards, three by five index cards, on which he had notes, and he would just, in a, a un, rather unexpressive voice, he would go through his notes, sometimes writing things on the blackboard. Uh, so uh, not at all a galvanizing or charismatic teacher, uh, but what he had to say was still, uh, to me, endlessly challenging and fascinating. So when did you start, when did you turn to the philosophy of mind or when, when did that interest arise? Well, I guess right at the very beginning, it was Descartes that, when I was a freshman, that hooked me. Right, so even before this. So, uh, all through my undergraduate years at Harvard, I was fascinated by, it wasn't actually a course in the philosophy of mind, as I recall, but I took epistemology from Roderick Firth and a few other courses that dealt in directly with the mind. I remember pouring myself into papers that uh, were already developing uh, uh, some of the views that I put into my thesis when I got uh, when I got to Oxford. Uh, so uh, my thesis, undergraduate thesis, was on Quine and what was wrong with his view of language. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I didn't want Quine to be my supervisor on that because I figured he'd just talk me out of it and uh, uh, I wouldn't end up uh, having anything to say. So I chose his, his protege, Dag uh, Follestal. Dag von Follestal was, a, I guess, a sort of postdoc working with Quine at the time and lecturing. And uh, I, uh, Dog was a wonderful supervisor because he, he let me charge ahead. He saw there was no stopping me. <laughs> and I, uh, uh, I wrote my dissertation uh, uh, attacking Quine's ideas of word and object. I thought I was the, the, the all-time anti-Quinean. I got to Oxford. Uh, after I read and discovered I was no, I was the, I was the local Quinean. <laughs> I I accepted much more of Quine than any of my uh, classmates, uh, any of my other graduate students at Harvard uh, at Oxford. Uh, what was the reason for going to uh, Oxford for your PhD? Well, I'd read Gilbert Ryle, and I'd read I'd read quite a lot of Ayer too, but but I'd read. Gilbert Ryle's concept of mind, and I thought that was a very wonderful book. And I'd, uh, I'd read the investigations. Uh, Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein was already dead, but at the time there were more Wittgensteinians in Oxford than there were in Cambridge. Uh, so that was a good place to go. Yeah. So, so Gilbert Ryle becomes your supervisor for your dissertation mm -hmm. as well? Yes, he did. And what was the topic of your dissertation? The topic of my dissertation was uh, a, a, a first pass of a materialist theory of mind where uh, uh, it was about consciousness and learning in the brain. And I had a Darwinian theory of learning. Actually, I, I managed in that dissertation to get versions of the ideas that I later became well known for. I just, I guess I got lucky. I, I found a few very central and different ideas. And uh, I managed to express them. And then I've spent the next 50 years uh, 
clarifying, improving, tweaking, and just sort of turning the crank. And uh, uh, the theory that it emerges today is a, is, is a very clear descendant of what I worked out in graduate school. So was, was Ryle's influence on you of the same kind as Quine's through his writings? Or do you have sort of benefit more from, from discussing things with him? Or, and, uh... That's a very good question. And, and I have to say that to my chagrin and uh, dismay, I didn't think Ryle was influencing me at all. I was, uh, at the time, I was, I thought he was a sweet, wonderful man, but I didn't think I was learning anything from him. He was very uncritical. He never seemed to, I couldn't get him to argue with me. And I would go and I actually deliberately went in to see him with some um, strong criticisms of positions in the concept of mind or some of his other articles. And his response was all, I, I remember telling another graduate, it was like punching a pillow. Uh, you know, he didn't fight back. Uh, so I didn't think I'd really learned anything from him. But he was great at cheering me up and I needed that because I was often on the edge of despair and thinking that maybe I wasn't cut out to be a philosopher at all. And I'd go see him and drag myself into his uh, rooms in Maudlin and emerge with a spring in my step and ready to go back to work. Uh, and then on on the eve of handing in my finished dissertation, I found an old draft of it that is about six months old or longer and compared it to what I, the finished product was. And his hand was just all over it. It was, the influence was obvious. And I remember actually going around to some of my friends and saying, you know, I've been telling you that, that, that Ryle is, I haven't learned anything from Ryle. It turns out I've learned a lot from Ryle. Uh, and I think one of the things I learned was something about style, about, about how, how, to, how to persuade people. Uh, you don't find a lot of nifty premises, definitions and logical arguments in Ryle. It's a very different, more informal style. And Ryle never wrote a dull sentence, nor did Quine. They were both, I think, wonderful writers. Uh, and I think I picked up my appreciation of writing clearly and vividly uh, from them which is a, a, a gift from them, for sure. So once you had finished your, your dissertation, what, what was on your mind then? Were you sort of, did you have a topic that you want to pursue further, this topic or? Yes, I, I, wanted, I went off to Irvine, which was a great first job because it was a brand new university. I, I, uh, have the honor of having taught the first class, the first day of the existence of UC Irvine, 8.30 in the morning on a Monday. And I uh, uh, began the University of California, Irvine by talking about Descartes' meditations. <laughs> and uh, when I was at Irvine, I. Uh, Actually, I didn't really get to teach much philosophy of mind. I was working on it. And I was working on revi revising my dissertation for, for pulling articles out of it, I thought. But there I ran into a snag uh, because you had to see the whole argument, the whole 
argument to see what was going on. I tried uh, sending versions of the first chapter or two uh, off to journals, and I got a long series of rejections, uh, a dozen, more than that. Uh, nobody'd publish it. Um, I got a rejection uh, from Wilfred Sellers that was particularly amusing. He was the editor at the time of, uh, uh, I can't remember the name of the journal now, uh, but uh, I sent him a paper, a draft, and he wrote back and said, I think this has promise, but it is clear about this, this, and this. I was so thrilled and I quickly rewrote the paper to get clear about this and this and sent it back. And he said, oh, now that I see what you're arguing, I don't think it's worth publishing. I got to hand it to Wilfred. He, he, uh, he wasn't uh, afraid to uh, reject a paper that uh, had done just what he said should be done. Uh, I later got to know him well. Didn't hold that rejection against him. It was a fairly lonely uh, philosophical period for me at Irvine because I had to write this whole darn book and I couldn't, people would ask me what I'm working on. I could, there was no sort of polite way to tell them because it was too big a project. I would have had to back them into a corner and harangue them for half an hour at least. Uh, uh, and I, I, I couldn't do that. So I had to sort of hide that until the whole book was done. Then it was, that was Content and Consciousness, my first book published in 69, when I was, what, 27 years old. And, uh, uh, but that managed to get enough of the story all in one place so that it began to get noticed and people began to pay attention to it. That really uh, was the uh, launching of my philosophical career. Right. So for, for those of our, those listening who, who are not familiar with your writings, what was just sort of, in your eyes, the main contribution of, of that book or what line would were you interested in pushing at that point? Um, well, I was pushing a, a functionalist line that, that, that the theory of how we can make sense of the mind is that the brain uh, has evolved these structures, these states that have certain functions and it's the functions that give them the meanings they have and that uh, you have to get all the way back out to action. Uh, a state of the nervous system doesn't mean a thing uh, except insofar as it's related to uh, the behaviors that it enables or predisposes or, or causes. So it was an early version of, you say, functionalism and the theory of consciousness was very skeptical about mental images and, and really about qualia. The term wasn't, I think, used in the book, but it was, a, it was a, uh, an attempt to tie consciousness actually to language too. Already in that book, I had the idea that human consciousness was very different from the consciousness of other creatures, because we could talk about it. We could, we could tell folks what it was like to be us. And so, so, so for those listening who, who are unfamiliar with the notion of qualia, how would you describe that? Even though I take it that you don't believe qualia exists. Yeah. Well, suppose I ask you, what do you see? And you look up and you say, well, I see a painting on a wall. How do you know? Well, <laughs> I just do. My eyes are open. I've got sight. I can see it. Well, <clears throat> are you sure there's a painting on the wall? Well, 
there seems to be a painting on the wall and I can see the colors and so forth. And uh, of course it might be uh, an illusion or a hallucination, but in any case, even if it's a hallucination, I'm having an experience of colors and shapes and so forth in motion. Well, what does that consist in? Well, there are these internal properties in me that I'm directly acquainted with. The, the blue of the sky and the painting, the, the, the beige of the wall, um, the painting is on and so forth. And it's these subjective color properties uh, as for instance, but also the, the aroma of hot coffee, the, the, uh, the feel of, uh, of, a, of a greasy surface, uh, the pain in my leg, all of these are uh, supposed to be internal intrinsic properties of some sort that I am directly acquainted with. Well, there's no question that I can tell you what, it, what I'm seeing and doing and experiencing. I can tell you what it's like, but the rest of that is theory. Uh, it's not direct observation. This idea of direct acquaintance with internal properties is simply a big mistake. Um, we don't experience the medium of our, of our uh, consciousness at all. The medium is actually uh, neural processes, which are as unexperienced by us as the processes in our spleen or our, or our stomach are. Uh, but philosophers have uh, been led to these theories of these internal properties, which they call qualia, which I have argued for what, 50 years are just, just a big mistake. Qualia can't serve the purpose they were invented for. And they tie people up in knots, creating uh, imaginary hard problems uh, that defy solution and uh, are, as it were, systematically insoluble because they're just wrong. So what was the, how was your book received and what, what did it mean to you to, to have it published? Did it, uh, it was propel your career? It was published in 69 and it got a wonderful review from one of the world's most uh, eminent philosophers of mine at the time, J.J.C. Uh, Smart, an Australian. And he gave it a wonderful review and another review by a man named Franklin, again, uh, Australian. Uh, and the book was discovered by uh, Dick Richard Rorty and Gil Harmon at Princeton. And um, there were several courses at Princeton that used it. So that I was suddenly, uh, and I mean really quite suddenly, uh, quite in evidence uh, with the results. So that was a wonderful thing. Uh, the book was published in a, a distinguished series, Rutledge and Keegan Paul, uh, the famous philosophy and scientific method series. And so I was off pretty quickly uh, on a fast track. So, so misspent leaving Irvine, or um, I was happy at Irvine. Uh, it's Southern California. I could, I could, and actually did on a couple of occasions uh, swim in the ocean in the morning and ski uh, in the mountains in the afternoon. Uh, these are these are. Uh, I was an avid sailor was racing sailboats, uh, not my own, but on cruise. Uh, so Southern California had many charms, but my wife and I were both from the East and we wanted to move East eventually. And we bought some, an old farmhouse, a decrepit 
old farmhouse in Maine one winter. And the idea of commuting 3,000 miles every summer <laughs> to go to this farm didn't, didn't make sense. So I began looking for a job on the East Coast. And that's when I uh, moved to Tufts, where I've been since 1971. I've been a visitor here and there, but that was, uh, that's been my home base since 1971 when I was, let's see, uh, 29 years old. So after the, 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 the book was noticed and, and discussed, how sort of, what was next for you in terms of developing your ideas there? And Oh, it was just a case of adding to the theory, applying it to various new topics. Uh, I traveled all over the United States giving talks uh, uh, and that eventually led to a collection uh, called Brainstorms. And I was very fortunate with that book because I had this batch of papers that I'd been reading. I thought I wanted to publish a collection so people could see how they fit together. And I hated the way university presses were charging outrageous sums for their hardbacks. And I wanted to find some other way of publishing it. And at just the right moment, um, uh, Harry and Betty Stanton showed up in my office. Uh, they were the founders of Bradford Books which then became a part of MIT Press. And Harry decided to go into publishing in, in sort of cognitive science, which was just getting started as, a, this, as an interdisciplinary area. And Noam Chomsky had said, well, go talk to Dan Bennett. He's got some interesting stuff. And I gave Harry and Betty this stack of papers that I'd collected. I said, I want to publish these as a book. And here's how I want to do it. Since he was starting a new publishing house, I figured the rules were not yet set. I said, I, you can charge whatever you want for the hardback, but I want it to come out simultaneously in hardback and paper. And I want to have control of the price of the paperback. And I'm so sure that this is what I want to do and that this is good, that I will forego all royalties on the first 3,000 copies of the book. Uh, if you do this, well, most philosophy books never sell 3,000 copies. So <laughs> uh, uh, Harry and Betty took the stack of papers and took them back to Vermont to their ski lodge and showed them they needed to get some editorial advice on them and sent the batch of them to two uh, young philosophers at the University of Vermont. That was Philip uh, mm -hmm. Kitcher and his wife, Patricia. And they read them and said, oh yeah, publish them. Uh, and that's how brainstorms came about. And Harry uh, and Betty really made a big splash. They wanted, they were starting this new venture, Bradford Books. So they had some very clever advertising. And Ted Gorey, uh, American artist uh, of some note, uh, did the cover. And uh, they, had some wonderful flyers that were sent out. And so brainstorms really made a big splash. And I was absolutely right about having it come out in paperback. <laughs> Almost nobody bought the hardback, <laughs> but the paperback <laughs> has been in, for sale. And is, uh, it's still, it's never gone out of print. Uh, so that was a good, that was a good choice. It came out in 81 or? 78, 78. 78. Yeah. And that was one of the important things that went from that was that that book got 
picked up and reviewed in the New York Review of Books by a young man named Douglas Hofstadter. And he had just uh, written Gertel Escherbach, which won a Pulitzer. And he wrote a, an ecstatic review of brainstorms for the New York Review of Books, which certainly helped. And then he came in 1981, he came to visit me. I was at Stanford at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Science that year. And he twisted my arm to join him in a venture to do a book that we did together called The Mind's Eye. And I, I resisted that. <laughs> uh, but he, I'm very happy to say, had the uh, uh, intensity of purpose to, to, to not give up on me. And I'm certainly glad he didn't because that, changed my life again. Uh, when that book came out, it got a lot of attention and a lot of people interested in cognitive science and in the philosophy of cognitive science. And uh, that book's still in print too. You mentioned that you sort of, early on you identified this project that you've been working on more or less since then. Uh, have, have you been sort of um, breaks in your thought where you sort of have an, an early opinion that you've since, since discarded or some position that you no, no longer believe in that have been important for your development? Um, oh, yes. Um, there were mistakes, of course, in my early thinking. And I, when I discovered them, I, I, I tried to correct them. Um, one of the mistakes was I had this sort of jokey line in con uh, content and consciousness where I said a certain kind of theory simply replaced the little man in the brain with a committee. And this didn't seem like progress. And I later thought, no, 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 that is progress. If you think of the brain as a, as a host of little agents interacting, competing, collaborating, this is, progress, and uh, that's a view that was soon called homuncular functionalism, uh, lots of little homunculi. Uh, and uh, I certainly didn't have that in my head when I did my first book. That was a, that was a major about face that I did. Um, it fits the theory perfectly once I figured it out. And then in the early 21st century, I got really worried about the theocratic rumbles that were happening in America. The uh, religious right was becoming an ominous force. And I decided I had to do something about this. And uh, uh, I wrote an op-ed piece that was published in the New York Times, which got a lot of attention about atheism. And a lot of people said, Ben, you've, you've got to write a book about atheism, about religion. Well, did I? They said, yes, you've captured public attention. Now, take advantage of it. You have, a, you have an obligation to do something. And I decided that the people that were urging me on were right. And I dropped about a half a dozen years to work on religion, which led to my book, Breaking the Spell in 2006. And I worked very hard on that book. And one of the main effects of it was that I I had been at the very cutting edge of work on consciousness in neuroscience and cognitive science in general. And I, I fell back. I, 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 during a very active period, I wasn't keeping up with the literature. And I regretted that. I mean, the time I spent writing the religion book, I, I, I would do it again 
because I think it was an important task. Uh, and it certainly has led to some important results. But it, it, it took its toll on my, and I finally, I think, clawed my way back to the cutting edge on consciousness, but it's been hard work in the years uh, since 2006. You also written on, on other topics that might be sort of related to, uh, to religion. So you wrote Darwin's Dangerous Idea, which came out earlier, right? Yeah, we haven't mentioned con uh, Consciousness Explained. Right. That's my, my big book on consciousness, which took the ideas from the first book, Content, uh, uh, content and Consciousness, and from Brainstorms, and put them all together into a, into a big theory. I'd been uh, hanging out with more with cognitive scientists than with philosophers for a number of years. And uh, I was ready to deliver. And that was, that was a trade book that was published uh, by Little Brown. And it, it was a, uh, an immediate uh, success, uh, which was exciting. But then I began to see that an idea which was central to that book, namely that about how brains evolved and about how consciousness evolved culturally, uh, that these were just, there was too much ignorance and misinformation about evolution um, in high levels in cognitive science, uh, including uh, famously, uh, my dear friend, uh, Jerry Fodor, who just was a major anti-Darwinian <laughs> and uh, various conversations I had with him and meetings that I attended at MIT and Harvard uh, convinced me that I had to get in there and sort of set the story straight about Darwin. And I'd been paying a lot of attention to evolutionary theory at this point. And so I had to write a book to, to show people to defend Darwin and, and to undo the misrepresentations of evolution that were very common and that were due to Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who was regarded as America's evolutionist laureate uh, but in fact, Gould's version of evolution was seriously wrong. And Richard Dawkins uh, had a much clearer and better vision of the power of Darwinian thinking, uh, which interestingly enough, Gould was actively suppressing in the United States. Uh, Dawkins, for instance, made uh, a number of wonderful documentaries about evolution uh, with the BBC and other British uh, television. And Gould personally prevented those from being shown on American public television. Uh, <laughs> so much was he, uh, so influential was he. And the more I learned about this, the more I decided it had to be undone. And so Darwin's dangerous idea was my attempt to introduce America to the Darwinian theory that I knew and thought was good. And uh, sure enough, Gould attacked it um, with, with real vigor and, and a lot of, of uh, nastiness. Um, but um, his view is waning now and uh, the views that Dawkins and, and a whole lot of other evolutionary biologists, theorists, uh, defended are, are uh, now taken more seriously as they should. So that was a, that book was a, a corrective too. <laughs> In a way, never thought of this before, but I suppose both Darwin's Dangerous Idea and Breaking the Spell were books that were written to uh, try to undo what I viewed as 
deeply mistaken philosophical views of deeply important topics, uh, uh, religion in one case and uh, evolution in the other. Let's get back to uh, Consciousness Explained, which you briefly mentioned. It's your most uh, cited book, which I checked today. It's over 16,000 cit- citations made to it, uh, which is quite remarkable. Um, what, what, what are the, the new ideas that you present in this book when it's, when it, uh, when it's published in 1993? 1991. 1991. Um, I think the, the one it's sort of best known for is my identification of a, of a very tempting mistake, which is still tempting to many people, which I called Cartesian materialism. Um, Pretty much everybody had given up on dualism, the idea that uh, Descartes' idea that there was a, uh, the brain was uh, uh, in contact with an immaterial uh, soul-like thing, a thing, a race cogitans that was not made of matter uh, and that there was, there was mind and then it was matter and they were two different things. Once we got, rid of that idea, uh, the idea that there was a place in the brain where it all came together uh, and where consciousness happened uh, was maintained. And I call this the Cartesian theater. And people who held the the view, I said, these are Cartesian materialists who think there's a place where the experience happens in our head, where there's a sort of show going on. It's a tremendously seductive metaphor, and it is wrong. There is no Cartesian theater, because if there were a Cartesian theater, there'd have to be a homunculus in there who was the audience and who appreciated all the things and you know felt the pains and uh, anticipated the results of various things, and the idea that there's a little control room somewhere in the brain where where the self resides, the ego, the I, and that this self is the uh, source of all action and the destination of all perception is a habitual way of thinking. It's very hard to break the habit. So the main point of the book was to Uh, break up the Cartesian theater, and well, what do you replace it with? Well, at the time I had what I called the multiple drafts model. I later refined that somewhat, and it became the model of fame in the brain. Some neural states were just more influential than others. They they achieved a certain sort of fame. They they played dominant roles in, in Uh, adjusting behavior and thinking, I refined it further since with the help of a lot of other people. So the idea that there's no Cartesian theater where it all comes together was the the key idea there. And uh, there's still backlashes against against my criticism, but at least uh, people now have to Take the uh, take the possibility quite seriously <laughs> that there is no Cartesian theater and that they should avoid thinking in ways that uh, would uh, perpetuate that that myth. Thinking about your sort of contributions um, in, in in retrospect, what kind of role do you see for a philosopher when? Sort of because much of your writing has been informed by psychology and neuroscience and what sort of role does a philosopher have with respect to yeah those interactions? No, well, I, I think it's uh, I think this is a golden age for philosophy in science because cognitive science, I think. A theory of the mind is is sort of the last great mystery. Physics is cosmology, 
these have made biology have made fabulous uh, advances. You know, in our lifetime, uh, things that we understand today very well uh, that nobody understood 50 years ago. Uh, but the mind is still an area where people aren't even sure what the right questions are. And that's where philosophy can play a role, but it has to be informed philosophy. I think armchair philosophy but done by people who don't know any cognitive science, any neuroscience uh, or any computation, don't know anything about AI. And I think that's now exposed as a sort of fantasy world, which sometimes comes up with insights that are valuable, but more often than not misleads. So I think philosophers of mind who not only read the literature, but actually get into the labs and see how the science is done uh, and actually discuss with um, people in AI how, they're, how and why their robots are designed the way they are. This is how you uh, enrich your philosophical imaginations in an important way. So I think philosophers who educate themselves in this way and make wonderful contributions and are making wonderful contributions to the sciences. It's a little bit like the role of theoretical physicists uh, who aren't experimentalists. They don't have labs, they just work it out uh, you know, with computers and pencils and paper. Um, and I think that philosophy, you don't have to have a lab, but you should know how labs work. And that's really uh, the key to making contributions. And I should say that now, uh, I, I may have been the, the sort of the first philosopher to really do that, but there are several generations now of younger philosophers who know much more about neuroscience and uh, artificial intelligence than I do that have spent much more time in laboratories as collaborators. And, and that's the way it should be. They are, they are the future of this field. And we still have philosophers who, who aren't doing that. And I think they are well worth rebutting in detail because they're uh, still trying to uh, cling to the old fashioned ways. I'll mention just one. Galen Strassen, the son of P.F. Strassen has really staked out his position Against me, I have the honor of having uh, made the silliest claim ever made in the history of thought, <laughs> in his view. So one of us is dead wrong. I'm pretty sure it's uh, Galen. <laughs> what was the claim? The claim was that consciousness isn't what you think it is. Your own knowledge of your own consciousness is not the authoritative bedrock knowledge that you think uh, and that you're wrong about what your consciousness is. It's not as magical as you think it is. It's the work of millions of little agents in your brain, no, none of which are conscious and they generate a, an illusion that is that there is a self with a stream of consciousness. Philosophers have combated this by inventing the concept of a, of a philosopher's zombie. This isn't one of those horror movie zombies that uh, looks dreadful and uh, staggers around. Uh, but a philosopher's zombie is somebody who is just as animated and good company as a normal human being but there's nobody inside. There's nobody home. It's uh, 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 what some of your best friends might be zombies. And I'm saying this is a catastrophic mistake 
it's an embarrassment if you if you think that the contrast between a conscious person and a philosophical zombie is serious, then you're making the big mistake that I'm arguing against. Uh, in Consciousness Explained, I even have a passage where I say, in a certain sense, we're all zombies. Uh, uh, because the sort of magical stuff that philosophers insist on isn't happening, not in you, not in me. And uh, this passage, <laughs> I had to put a footnote warning people that if it was quoted out of context, this would be a very intellectually dishonest uh, move. And so the philosophers that disagree with me can't help but brandish this passage, but they have to acknowledge <laughs> the footnote that warns them about quoting it out of context. The emptive strike on my part. In one of your latest books, uh, Bacteria to Bach and Back, you, you write about AI, uh, which makes me curious about uh, the concept of consciousness and AI. Could we see a future where we have self-conscious AI? I hope not. Um, I've been arguing that we, we want to make smart machines, not artificial colleagues. A conscious AI agent would be a very dangerous addition to the world's furniture. Because if it really were conscious the way we are, then it would have goals and projects and attitudes that are no more controllable by us than we can control the thoughts and attitudes of other human beings. And because it would be uh, a very different and novel sort of conscious agent, it would be out of our control. This has been an important argument of mine recently that conscious agents are dangerous. We're all dangerous, but we're socialized, educated, and Pretty much, we take our moral responsibility seriously. Uh, a conscious AI would have one fundamental difference from us, that it could be immortal in a certain sense, if it could be backed up. And it, it wouldn't have to fear death or imprisonment the way we do. Um, some people say, well, you know, we just, we just hit the off switch when it gets obstreperous. Well, if it was really conscious, its first priority would be to get control of its on off switch and get it. That's what you'd do if you knew there was an on off switch. So we, we don't want to take that chance. I think, by the way, that a genuinely conscious AI agent is theoretically possible, but very much more difficult than people think, which is a good thing. So I'm mainly worried about people being taken in by lesser agents, uh, by AI agents that that aren't as smart and aren't as conscious as they seem to be. I think we've got to teach people how to see through the pretense of a lot of AI uh, stagecraft in effect. Um, as a final question, what are you currently working on or towards? Well, um, Right now, I'm actually working on a memoir of how I, how I learned to think uh, and how I learned not to think. And I'm also working uh, with um, Keith Frankish, a uh, British philosopher living in Crete, 
on a thought experiment to build a conscious AI, <laughs> but it's just a thought experiment. We don't want to make one. And showing how building up from small pieces, we can make sense of many of the features of consciousness uh, as we start with a remote controlled teleoperated sort of electronically operated humanoid puppet and gradually offload to it all the decisions that we're making on its behalf until it becomes fully autonomous. This is the uh, emancipation of the, of the drone or the emancipation of the, of the humanoid puppet. And I think if we do that right, we can satisfy people's curiosity about robot consciousness, uh, but also show them why we don't want to uh, pursue this uh, all the way to uh, completion. Thanks so much for, for being on the, the podcast. I've been delighted to talk to you.